hot for TV. Welcome to another episode of Doctor Who Too Hot for TV. This time I'm joined by a special guest. I don't have Jack here with me. Instead, I've got Gareth from Cutaway Comics. Gareth, how are you doing? Hi. Um, yeah, good. Enjoying a nice kind of grey grizzly afternoon in Manchester you know this is this is like the summer for us. So we're going to jump straight into things um, you've got a lot of exciting projects coming up that uh, we want to talk about in a bit but first of all I want to know how did you become a Doctor Who fan? Well I suppose like lots of people I can't remember a time when Doctor Who wasn't a part of my life. My very earliest memory and everyone must have one but the earliest clear memory I have is uh, the deadly assassin. Right. So, uh, Remember the uh, the master's fried egg eyes and <laughs> and the matrix and 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 the the terror the absolute terror and the little shrunken Gallifreyan guard. Um, so yeah, that was that that was my first memory. So I my first memories are really um, all that Hinchcliffe stuff. But I suppose the moment it became absolutely thrilling and and I remember the excitement of every Saturday in. September in the autumn it's got to be that season 15 and and horror fang rock from on there so so since then it's it's like all of us I guess it's kind of grown through our lives like like Japanese knotweed it's impossible to remove and it's impossible to imagine it not being there I suppose yeah I mean I think that's the same for a lot of people I think you either watch it as a kid for a year or two and then grow out of it or it just consumes like different facets of your life yeah, you, you know, it, you're so right. I remember one of the great disappointments about growing up is when you're in primary school, everyone kind of liked the same stuff. We all liked Star Wars and we all liked Doctor Who and we all liked Buck Rogers and, and comics and exciting things. And then you get to your teen years and you kind of notice you're the only person still reading Doctor Who books and watching Doctor Who and talking about it. So I think there is something in us that that, that clings on to this. Um, incredible show and makes it a part of our lives in a way that most of our contemporaries don't and i think you know it always reminds me you know growing up in the 80s it, it could be quite a lonely thing being a doctor who fan because it was it was about as uncool a thing as you could imagine yeah yeah for sure i mean i grew up in the 90s where like the like, the first episode of doctor who i saw was the first episode of battlefield and then i caught the that last season so i grew up in the 90s where not only was were not many people into it it wasn't even really on oh that's cruel that is <laughs> i know cruelly denied but also growing up in the 90s there was kind of this thing of doctor who was kind of complete at that point if that makes sense so it was very much discovering something that existed as a whole thing um, well, the 90s is a great period of, of rediscovery and reinvention. You know, UK gold, you can't underestimate how important that was for all of us and the video releases. But in particular, UK gold, because it, it democratised access to old Doctor Who. Um, now, not always in a good way. I remember watching The Gunfighters uh, one Christmas in, oh, it must have been like 1992, and my mother just breezing through the, uh, through the, 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 the living room and going, oh, this is a bit amateurish, dear, and walked out. And I'm <laughs> God, you've nailed the gunfighters in one there. My mother has, has great form for this. You know, fast forward nearly 30 years and the um, the wedding of River, which, which is the River Song Christmas show. I, I'm not... the, hus- the husbands of River Song. Yeah, well, I sat down watching that on Christmas Day and she said, I didn't realise Doctor Who was a comedy nowadays, dear. And I thought, oh, God, she's nailed it again. So Brilliant. It's... it's you know, but it was a time of great creativity. So UK Gold, 
Um, the opening up of the archives as well, so all of Caversham and all of the paperwork meant that suddenly, even though there was no new Doctor Who on the TV, we could suddenly understand the old show in a way that we probably needed 15 years, to be honest, mm-hmm. to completely digest it and get up to date and, and understand and reappraise and reappreciate. You know, sometimes a bit of time off air can be a good thing to let us, you know, let us recharge and look at things anew, especially when the BBC isn't interested, because some of the stuff that was um, being developed, you know, the new adventures, the Doctor Who magazine, the comic strips, the audios, that's only possible, I think, when you've got a, a totally disinterested BBC, just letting it happen. Yeah, I agree. I mean, some of the things that like Bill Baggs got away with, you would not get away with now. Um, and the same with like the new adventures. They took it in areas that you couldn't do with a Doctor Who book now because, as you say, the BBC were disinterested. Yeah, I, and they didn't really have anyone that was looking after it. And I, and I think that if anyone was looking after it, it was probably BBC Enterprises. And to be fair, I always got the impression that they were pretty supportive of Doctor Who because it, it made them plenty of cash. So I think they were always supportive of, of new content. And um, so I guess the rerun seasons must have been quite important for you then as a young fan. So there's Medler and um, Planet of the Daleks and all that great stuff. Yeah, I think what what probably happened is I watched that final season of McCoy and loved it. And then it was that kind of rerun season. They started, I think they did 91 or 92. They did their first rerun and then the stuff around the 30th anniversary. And I think by that point, you know, you're getting to explore other doctors and things like that. And that kind of cemented me as a fan rather than just somebody who watched Doctor Who, like a season of Doctor Who on TV. Yeah, I, I, I think I think so. And that and that idea that Doctor Who's got a past and it's something to be celebrated. I mean, Doctor Who was treated pretty shabbily towards the end. Mm-hmm. You see, you know, they were they didn't really understand what they had. They were embarrassed by it. You know, they were having to produce all of those action spectacles on less than the budget of of like a Perry and June. So, you know, fair play and kudos to to JNT for doing all the things he did, but. You at least caught a decent final season there. I mean, Curse of Fenric, fabulous. You know, all of the stories in that. Even even Battlefield, which, although it has, you know, there's certain clumsiness in bits of the production, but you can't you can't whack its um, its ambition. It's fantastic. I mean, as a seven year old, Battlefield was just like it's got a big blue monster. There's explosions. There's knights in the current time. Like it's it's kind of one hundred and one Doctor Who. What you want as a kid? It's got one of the best scenes ever as well. I think in any Doctor Who, which is the um, I will get the tab, the um, the the scene with Mordred and Morgane and and the uh, the helicopter pilot. Oh yeah, that's fantastic. And, and that is just it. Something about that scene, which is so good, everything about that is played so well. Um, performances are great, the, the score's good. It's almost like it's a different show to the mm. rest of the show. Yeah, it's a. I could see why that would have worked quite. I mean, God, and doesn't nine, uh, that wasn't it set in 1996 or something, which felt like the far flung future? And now, and now here we are. 96 makes me feel, makes me think of Euro 96, and I had these ridiculous orange. Pepe jeans that, that, that my baby hated then and hates now. Um, and they disappeared one day. I wonder where they went. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 96. Goodness me. I remember, I mean, I remember um, Sylvester McCoy coming on. And I have to say, the time of the Ronnie was one of the lowest points I can remember. The time of the Ronnie came on, I must have been about 13, 
I watched it round at a friend's house, and it was it was embarrassing. It was like, oh my god, this is. And I could see everyone looking at me, going, "Is this this thing you've been on about? You know, God, this is this is this is bad." And I guess it is bad, and I feel sorry for Sylvester because once that's out the way, and Paradise Towers turns up, then you get that you get Andrew Cartmel's really Andrew Cartmel's era, and mm. suddenly the program jumps up a notch. And I always liked Paradise Towers. Um, I remember there was an element of relief when that came on after Time of the Run. It's like, oh, actually, this is quite good. And it was mm. like Hey Jones, and um, it was it became more watchable. It was a tough time for that show. It was, it was. I, I love Paradise Towers, though, um, and we'll we'll cover a bit more of Paradise Towers later, I'm sure. We will, but you know, you're a, you're a TV production guy. I mean, mm. if you want to kill a show, you don't just put it up against Coronation Street. You give Coronation Street a five-minute head start. You know, people forget that Doctor Who went out at 7.35. So people who wanted to watch it had to make a conscious decision to turn over the channel from... Coronation Street, which in 1987 is at the absolute zenith of its powers. It's unbeatable. Mm. Um, that, that really tells me that they wanted it to die, and they wanted it to die very, very badly. So the fact it manages 5 million viewers is something of a miracle. It is, it is. And, you know, as you said, it, it, it definitely went through something of a renaissance under kind of, under Andrew Cartmel, and, you know, JNT did play a hand in that. I think he learned from his uh, relationship with Eric Saywood to be less hands-on and to trust the the script editors in guiding the narrative. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I think I think Eric and John is a, is a fascinating relationship, and obviously, I've got to know Eric, you know, fairly well. And I think there's obviously JNT isn't with us, but I, I know that there is there are regrets to a degree on Eric's side um, when he and he always speaks very warmly about John. And, you know, and John's got great qualities that he sees. He always, he's fairly consistent in saying John isn't actually that interested in, in the script mechanics, but he's always thinking in production terms. And I guess Andrew would probably say something very similar. Mm. Um, but that's okay when the relationship is good and you're trusting your script editor to really shape those seasons and shape those stories. And, and let's be honest, um, if Eric and John leave the programme at the end of 1984, with case of Androzani, you know, we will, you know, that's the end of the season. I think those two are, are up there in the pantheon of the greats. It, it, it's the difficulties that came after that, which I think have as much to do with changes of personnel in the BBC and, and new brooms coming in who just see this old thing that they don't like and they think we should all be watching, you know, Proust and, you know, and 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 great new adaptations and exciting new new drama and this thing is getting in the way of their schedule. So it's a it's a tough time for Doctor Who, but you're right. Um, Andrew comes in with a very clear vision and knows what he wants for that show, and and I think he gets it very quickly. So I want to know uh, as well, what is your kind of previous involvement with Doctor Who fandom? I mean, I'm 47. Gosh, no, I'm. Yeah. I mean, I'm virtually 48, so I'm 48 on the 16th, so I don't know when this goes out. So depending when this goes out, I'm either 47 or 48. I grew up in North Wales, in Llandudno, and there wasn't really much of a Doctor Who scene around us. The Doctor Who scene, certainly in the 80s, all seemed to be around big conventions in uh, London. And, you know, so there was no real way for me to interact with other fans. There was no internet. There was Doctor Who magazine, and you'd read that, and... I'd occasionally bore a couple of my friends rigid with this. Oh, I mean, I remember 
insisting we must watch Day of the Daleks, which I'd hired from the video shop, and everyone politely watched it. And they were like, oh. <laughs> Sometimes you have to learn that not everyone sees, you know, what you're seeing um, with the same fervor. So, mm. so I, I kind of, and then I went to university, and oddly enough, there was no Doctor Who scene at university at all. So it's only when I came out of university, and oddly enough, came back to live in Plan Bidbo, that there was a little Doctor Who local group started there. So probably in my sort of early 20s, I started, you know, meeting other Doctor Who fans. Then I got involved in a, writing a fanzine, which was always a, a rite of passage, but it's kind of died now to a degree. So I got involved in, in that, and then meeting other fans. And then sort of, but I didn't attend my first Doctor Who convention until probably the late 90s. And they're strange things, Doctor Who conventions. They're, um, you know, I, I've met a lot of friends and, and I can go to a Doctor Who convention. There'll be sort of 20, 30 people that I know, and that's lovely. Mm-hmm. But those first couple of conventions, goodness me, they were very cliquey and I didn't know anyone. And you just kind of awkwardly stand around like, like you know, like a hairy lemon at a party. <laughs> and, and I remember thinking, and you'd go to panels and then you'd have a drink and then you'd maybe peruse the merchandise. It was a, Again, it was a kind of extension of this um, lonely, um, distant relationship that I had with fans and, and the program. Then eventually, you, you see the same people and you get to know them. Um, so fast forward all that to the sort of 2000s, and, um, and I've got a pub in Manchester, the last gallery. And we show the football and we do all the kind of pub things that you think. And I remember thinking, well, you know, maybe there's a way that we can get people together to watch things. So we started showing Doctor Who on the big screen, a bit like the football, and just see what happens. So I think we did our first one would have been The End of Time, part two. That, yeah, whichever one was on New Year's Day in 2010, the last David Tennant one, and I thought we'll give it a go. And, and actually, we, we, we were full. It was as if, you know, United were playing um, Liverpool. The pub was actually full, but with, with Doctor Who fans. Amazing. Yeah, and from that, we, we then set up a monthly meet. We just said, well, look, let's have a go. We've all enjoyed this. Let's all meet on the last Saturday of the month. And it just all kind of grew from there, really. Then when Doctor Who would come back, I would show every Saturday, we'd show it live on the big screen. And then we started doing uh, little mini pub cons. Um, so we, we, we built a kind of Doctor Who community from nowhere so i guess it sort of it took me it took me probably 30 odd years to to um to sort of pull that together but in the end yeah all of my best friends are now doctor who fans so eight-year-old Dallas is quite happy and are you one of the people behind the warp magazine as well yes that's right so warp warp came about like all these things do by accident um what happened is there was a couple of writers and an artist who uh, got in touch and they said, look, you know, I think we should work together on a project. And this project was supposed to be um, a book on Doctor Who comics. And it was, as you always do when you go about your first project, it was wildly ambitious. And, and we were going to do a sort of chapter on each Doctor. Um, I suppose we were ripping off the uh, Doctor Who handbook in that we were going to cover the era and then we were going to look at one strip in huge detail and interviews and box outs. And like all these things conceived in pubs, it kind of fizzled out. But before it fizzled out, I'd more or less written the chapter on 
on the Cybermen, the Adrian Salmon, Alan Barnes strip from the 90s. Yeah. And I thought, oh, this is quite good. I'm, I'm, I'm a bit miffed um, that we're not going to do anything with this. And I'd always loved the Doctor Who comic strip, but especially in the 90s, when you talk about the wilderness year, the incredible eighth Doctor strip that Scott Gray and, um, and Gary Russell and all those guys, mm. uh, is some of the best Doctor Who in any medium and that's well okay maybe there's a one-off fanzine in this so i sort of tinkered around with it and then i got the big lucky break was i found colin brockhurst um because i went on gallifrey base and i said oh any designers here want to do some cash work i'm looking for you know some posters and flyers and you know interesting stuff for the for the pub and colin came back and then we chatted and i didn't realize that colin had this fantastic background in in fanzines, he, he was the publisher and editor of, of Circus, which is one of the um, seminal 90s fanzines. Um, and we just sort of hit it off. And I said, well, I've got this fanzine project that's kind of in pieces. Do you want to help me put it together? And, and he did. And originally he was the, uh, uh, the designer. Then he came on board as co-editor and, and that became Warp Warp. And now that's, oh, crikey, that's a project that's grown exponentially from this sort of little fanzine throwback into the most ludicrous lavish publishing um um thing that happens every two to three years it's a it's a fantastic magazine and uh anybody who is listening who hasn't picked it up should definitely go out there and uh try and get some copies i believe you've just reprinted issues one and two is that correct um issue one two uh, i mean issue one sold out pretty quickly because again we didn't expect i didn't know what to expect we had some nice interviews and some nice content and i I said oh we must have a free gift so we've done the transfers and that sold out quite quickly and then issue two sold out fairly quickly and i kept getting asked for can we have them and i thought well actually why there isn't really a good reason why we shouldn't make them available to people because i was feeling very sorry for people having to pay upwards of 50 quid copies of issue one on ebay and i thought well we could make these available to people at a sensible price and then people can because we, we're always getting people join you know when we do an issue they, they they find us for the first time and then they go oh gosh can i read the previous issues and up until now we've gone well no you can't they're out but now we can that's great um and yeah it is well worth a read it's a very doctor who thing a doctor who fan thing to have a magazine about a magazine but it's absolutely fascinating it's a super niche it is you know doctor who it thrives on knowledge and facts and new mm. knowledge we're at a point where you know i mean we, we will come to the point where we run out of facts about doctor who or, or things are just so unknowable that we will never really know them yeah um, but I remember thinking at the time that the comic had been really badly served in comparison to lots of other aspects of Doctor Who, so it was worth exploring. So, And that some great names had worked on, on it in the early stages of their career, so people like Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons, and, mm. you know, people who went on to you know, really substantial, huge, mega uh, things in their career, but Doctor Who was, was the beginning of in many ways of all their careers and it was their chance to their first chance to play with with bigger toys and they never forgot it so it's um yeah what we have another one out this year um, Oh, great so that's yeah issue four is, will have only taken three years which is a fairly speedy show that's pretty good you normally have to wait five years so we're 
we've nearly caught up with nothing at the end of the lane, which is always one of the jokes. We're always at least one or two times. Now we'll be actually level with nothing at the end of the lane, maybe, unless Richard puts one out too. So yeah, it's it's always joyous to work on. And actually, the relationship has changed with me and Colin. So I'm now the publisher and Colin is the editor. And that relationship works really well. So it's it's kind of like script editor and producer. Well, I will look forward to reading episode four when it comes out later this year. But your current project, I want to know, where did you first get the idea to do your own Doctor Who comic spin-off? Ah, well, like all these great ideas, um, someone else has come up with it first. So the genesis of this is back to me being seven and reading Doctor Who Weekly. And tucked away in the back of that comic, you obviously had the main script, which was, Tom Baker and it was it was wonderful. It was you know Pat Mills and um, Dave Gibbons and, and they were huge 2000 ADS uh, adventures, exciting and thrilling and British and 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 modern. And um, but tucked away in the back were these little two three page strips, the backup strips where the Doctor didn't feature. The Doctor never featured. It was it was ordinary folk having to get by without the Doctor there to save them. So it was um, and the, some of the best. Uh, Doctor Who related storytelling in there so things like Black Legacy where you've got a troop of Cybermen seeking the um, the ultimate weapon and they're being hunted by this ultimate weapon and it picks them all off one by one brilliant um, you've got um, an industrial spy breaking into a plastics factory and finding that the Autons have taken it over and there's, and he's being hunted by action men with machine guns so there's just wonderful wonderful ideas and and they were you know they were dark and gritty and quite often they did not have a happy ending um so they're very 70s in that respect but that always stuck in my mind that that there were characters and situations and planets and stories that the doctor's only there for five minutes and what happens after he's gone or she's gone or before the doctor has arrived or how these characters fare without the Doctor there, that there's lots of things, uh, lots of stories to tell. And, and it really sort of grew, from, you know, the seed was there from the very beginning. But I remember thinking, God, there's some great characters here I'd love to get my hands on. And, I, and actually, the Doctor would get in the way of telling these, the sort of stories that we want to tell. So we're happy not to have the Doctor. Great. And when did you realise that it was going to be Lytton? Was he your first choice of character? Um he was very early on, but he wasn't the first choice. My first choice character was actually Leela. Oh, right. Uh, as what happened was, is we'd done, I'd done some bits and bobs with um, Chris Boucher. So I'd produced a couple of um, adaptations of, of some of his stuff uh, as, as theatre plays. So we'd done Robots of Death um, in 2012. And so I, I knew Chris because I'd, I'd, I'd got Chris's details I was there in the very early days of eBay and back sort of 1999 and Chris had been there quite early and he'd sold his four rehearsal scripts for Robots of Death, ah. which was really nice, interesting stuff. And I bought them for, I think, £125. And I think he was very disappointed. Bargain. Well, it was at the time. And I think I remember this, this email he sent saying, well, you know, this just proves, as I've always thought, how easy it is to over, overvalue one's, one's own work. And I remember thinking, well, they're a bargain. We know that. And the scripts are great. Actually, as an aside, if you want to know what's in the draft scripts, because they are different in a number of areas. Um, then Fiona Moore um, 
did a, a black archive, one of those excellent black archive books on robots of death, and it goes into those scripts and details. So I made them available to Fiona, but I had, but I had Chris Boucher's details, and uh, and I'd interviewed him a couple of times over the years, and we kept in touch. And I remember thinking he'd got some great IP, and I remember thinking, oh god, yeah, Leela, brilliant. And I remember thinking how fantastic it would be to do Leela of the Sever team, you know, like Tarzan of the Jungle, and and mm. have. And explore that really strange world of the Tesh and, and the and the jungle and all the beasts and 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 really do something interesting. Except, of course, Chris no longer owned Leela. Right. Uh, but we, we didn't realise that until you know I had to ask a few other people because Chris did think he still owned Leela and he didn't own Leela anymore. He'd done a deal with the BBC in the seventies and didn't own it. So fine. So I remember thinking, God, that's disappointing. Um, but I remember thinking, well, who else? And, you know, you go back to what you, you love and, and you know, all that Peter Davison stuff. I, was, I would have been sort of 10 or 11 at the time. It's so exciting and so thrilling. And I liked Lytton as a character. And I always think the original idea was, I wonder what Lytton has been up to in between Resurrection Dalek and Attack of the Cyber, you know, because he's, he's, he's fitted very nicely into London gangland and is, is, is a face and he's built a crew and he's, you know, he's, he's an interesting, well thought through character. And I'm thinking, well, maybe he's got potential um, for a comic. And, you know, unashamedly, I love things like the Sweeney. I love things like the Long Good Friday. And I remember thinking, Lytton is, he fits that. He absolutely fits that. How it came about is I was working with Philip Hinchcliffe on, on a play, um, on mounting one of his screen twos as a fringe production, which we did, called nice. Richard So It was great working with Philip. Um, you, you know you've lived when you're in a room and Philip is giving notes, and you learn, I learned a lot. And, and his main lesson I got of him was only give three notes. If you give more than three notes, they either stop listening or they feel that, you know, you're being overcritical. So pick your three notes, but only give three notes. And I thought, God, he's right. That's, that's good. So I was meeting Philip in the green room of a Doctor Who convention to talk about this. And I noticed Eric Sayward was there. And I thought, God, this is it now or never. So I slid a card over the table to Eric and said, uh, give me an email. I'm really interested in having a chat about Lytton. And I think we might be able to do something interesting with him as a, as a comic. And, and he, he took the card. We probably spoke for about 30 seconds and that was it. Mm. And then Eric got back in touch the week after and, and, and we started to talk about what became Lytton. To me, this script is kind of pure Eric Saywood. It's full of big ideas. It's dark. It's action-packed. It's well-written. It's violence. It's, it's almost the show I wish he'd gone on to make after Doctor Who. Yeah, that's true. That's, um, I mean, Eric has a particular style and, and he has things that he's interested in. He, he likes the character of Lytton, which is obviously useful. Um, and comics allow us to do things that Big Finish can't, you know, because obviously Morris Colburn died tragically young in the late 80s. So Big Finish would never really be able to bring Lytton back without recasting him. And, and I think there's some characters you can't recast, and that's probably one of them. But of course, we still have the advantage of Eric being with us and Eric writing. And I think if you can hear... That when you read it, that comic, if you can hear that dialogue in Morris's voice, then it's Lytton. It's real. 
You you absolutely can. It feels like you've just picked up a comic almost that could have come out in between those two stories, and you, you do hear Morris's voice in it. You do. Although I'll tell you what's interesting about this with Eric's approach as well, is that Eric hasn't taken the obvious route, which is, oh yeah, we'll just do 1984. Um, he, he wanted to do something very, very different. So this is this is set in 1975, and it, it could be an earlier Lytton, it yeah. could be a different Lytton. And and he's he's very interested in in elements of the multiverse because I when Eric said yes let's do this he did say with great honesty I haven't read a single comic since I was a boy growing up in Wellham Garden City and so I, I got I almost got a bundle of stuff together for him to watch so I so I went through my shelf and I went right okay Watchmen V for Vendetta Dark Knight Returns you know I basically got a sort of great uh, you know a bundle of stuff which i sent off to eric which he dutifully read them all and i think it gave him the confidence to, to sort of go about things differently to you know as if he was writing for tv the confidence that you can have as many sets as you like you can have to, to a degree you can have as many characters as you want you can you can zoom around all over the place and that actually you've got to act as director as well as writer but eric has a, a very distinctive voice and i think he's enjoyed writing it because let's be honest i mean i didn't realize this till i thought about it the other day this is the first doctor who ish thing that eric has actually written since 1985 wow and that's an awfully long time for, it is. but he's got back into it and he's enjoying it and that's the most important thing and people seem to be enjoying the um the comic and and of course, I know where the story's going, but um, no one has guessed it yet, so I'm, I'm kind of pleased. That's great. I can't wait to see uh, where this particular story goes. It's got wonderfully stylized visuals. Uh, the art's beautiful. It's by Barry Renshaw. How did you recruit him? Well, Barry I'd known for a few years. Barry is one of the three people who, who met in the pub and came up with the book that became Vought Warp. So... I'd known Barry on and off and tangentially for sort of 15 years. And I remember thinking, um, oh, Barry would be quite good to work with because Barry is not just an artist. Barry has worked as a writer. He's worked as a concept guy. But he's also worked on the editorial side. And I thought it was important to put Eric together with an artist who knew what they were doing, but also had a, an appreciation of, of script and maybe would be able to help Eric to translate his scripts into things that work visually on the page. And I, and I think it's a partnership that's worked really well. And they're, um, they're a pleasure to work with, the pair of them. Great. Um, and suppose I'm a fan of new Doctor Who who's never seen Resurrection of the Daleks or Attack of the Cybermen. Do you think that I could pick this up and enjoy it? Yeah, I, I think so. I, th I think it's a surprisingly modern story in that obviously it deals with uh, issues of identity. It deals with cities. It deals with friendship. You know, obviously Wilson and Lytton as, as a pair are very different. And, and in that first episode in particular, you know, Lytton is a bit of a bastard to, mm. to Wilson, who is, is this loyal ex-comrade from, from the army. But, but the two of them, them bond as the story goes on. I have to say Wilson was a, was a relatively um, late addition to the script because originally it was going to be Griffith. But of course, we, we weren't able to get the rights to Griffith because that Paula Moore owns that and Paula Moore Paula Moore's passed on now so um, there's no direct line that we can go to to say well can we use Griffith so so there's, there's early versions of the script out there somewhere with Griffith in it um, but actually I'm really glad 
that we've we've gone with Wilson as a brand new character because I quite like him because he's he's got an almost puppyish devotion to Mr. Lytton, which is quite nice, and it it sometimes shows him throws sharp relief on Lytton as perhaps not this sort of cuddly nice um, almost um, you know almost acceptable um, authority figure that actually Lytton is is a bit of a swine as well. Yeah, so he's he's. He's our he's our way in. So maybe, you know, in the same way that the companion has almost equal footing in modern Doctor Who, I guess uh, Wilson is our is our identity figure in there. Yeah, for sure. Why do you think there haven't been more sort of Doctor Who comics like that deal with spin-off characters and things like that? <laughs> I'll tell you exactly mm. why. Um, well, there's, there's two parts to this answer. The first is cost and time. Um, right. Cost. Um, I mean, comics are uh, an incredibly expensive medium, you know, and they are very time consuming. I mean, God, we announced this in December 2016 and I, in all my uh, naivety, thought, oh, yeah, we'll easily have this out by sort of 2017. And here we are, it's taking us till 2020. And to be frank, a pandemic where we were all stuck at home thinking, oh, my God, what are we going to do? Right. OK, we'll we'll get those comics. We'll actually push them over the line now. Mm. So it, it's a lot of time. It's a lot of, um, you know, it's a, a, an awful lot of effort. But identifying the rights and getting hold of the rights holders, it, it's quite a minefield. There are, obviously, Eric was very open to it, and Eric owns his characters. But Eric doesn't have an agent anymore. So it literally was a stroke of luck that I was in that green room with Philip Hinchcliffe, and Eric was there. Otherwise, I wouldn't have had a way to approach Eric easily and say, what do you think about Lytton? Now, there are other rights holders who I know personally, and we've had discussions about potential bits and bobs and things that we know. But it's mostly through people you know, because I have to say, on the whole, when we've tried going through agents and we're talking about estates, that they're generally disinterested in doing deals for you know, obscure little characters from a a back catalogue of, of a long dead writer. I mean, I'm not saying they're all like that. There are exceptions to that, but I could also tell you horror stories about somewhere we've been through where they, 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 the disinterest could not be more palpable. Now, maybe that will change as we continue to put a product out there and our profile increases. But yeah, it, it's, it's a tough, tough, tough thing getting agents to take you seriously and persuading people that, that you're worth collaborating with especially when to be fair we we didn't have anything to show other than i could show people copies of warp warp i guess to say this is this is me yeah and if you're titan or someone like that and you've got the rights to doctor who sort of itself then i suppose why would you be interested in a litten or a paradise towers now i think that personally think that that that's the wrong approach but i could understand why big companies just gravitate to the biggest properties and go we want the biggest properties so we'll have everything bbc owned in a license and if we want to add other characters well then we can but then we'll go to individual estates to do that so we've kind of turned that on its head and said we're not interested in the doctor uh we want we want to explore that slightly more brutal um messy universe where the Doctor isn't around to tidy things up and bugger off in the TARDIS in the last five minutes. Uh, and you have launched, well, you launched the 
the, I guess, the marketing campaign for it through Kickstarter. Why did you decide to go the crowdfunding route? Again, and I'll be totally honest with you, this was um, a brilliant piece of luck. We had a big feature. We knew we had a big feature in Doctor Who magazine in July, I think it was. And it was great. It was a fabulous six-page spread. And um, we pulled together lots of interviews and we were uh, showcasing the, the concept. And I thought, great. And then read this and then they'll go to our website and they'll order stuff, as you would expect. Then, uh, probably about a week before we hit a hitch with our website, it wasn't going to be ready. It was going to be ready, but not for a week after this came out. And I thought, oh, God, well, that's a problem because I need people to be able to move from that article to the website for ordering. And if the website isn't there, they can't do that. So I thought, right. I need something that's up there that will let people see what the project is and then order. And I thought, well, Kickstarter will do that. So that was the first element of luck. The second element of luck came in that I was on LinkedIn and John Freeman uh, posted a news piece and an opinion piece about Kickstarter. And it was basically a small press publisher who was saying, well, normally we don't do Kickstarter, but because there's no conventions at the moment with COVID, because normally we would we would buy a stall at a Doctor Who convention, lay all our magazines and comics out and sell them, bring some guests, yeah. all good. None of us could do that. And they said, so we're going to Kickstarter, which is our way of interacting with, with our customers. And I thought, oh, okay, there's a logic to that, quite clever. And then the final sort of, and this all happened over the space of about two or three days, the final thing happened where one of our cover artists Paul Hanley, um, great American artist, had said, well, and of course you're going to be kickstarting this, aren't you? And I went, well, don't think so, no. And he went, well, idiot, you, you, you must kickstart this. And I went, well, why? And he said, well, he said there is a whole community on Kickstarter that is used to backing um, independent comics and new comics, and they are, they are very much tuned in to looking for the new and the exciting and I think your project will fit in there. And I thought, God, he's right. I mean, why wouldn't I want to look at it? So all those things kind of clicked together. And I have to say, if one of those pieces hadn't fallen into place, let's say the website had been ready, I probably wouldn't have done it. If I hadn't spoken to Paul Hanley, I definitely wouldn't have done it. So all of those things came into place. And, and I have to say, I was kind of, well, I pleasantly surprised would be undercooking it. I was, I was, I was utterly thrilled with how well it did and then but we had to learn on the job what goes into a kickstarter and how you promote it and, and on and on and on so so yeah we got over the line with with 13 grand which led us do the orsini one shot which was all so it, it's been a great learning experience and now every release will get its own kickstarter and do you know what we'll make different mistakes next time it's always a learning process isn't it so in terms of the kickstarter you get some amazing kind of extras and perks value-added material so can you just talk us a little bit through that some of the things you get there yeah i mean from pretty early on in the process again i, I was coming back to why are people going to want to What's going to make people want to buy this comic? I mean, yes, there'll be people who like Eric Sayward, just as there are people who don't like Eric Sayward. So the people who don't like Eric Sayward are not going to buy this. That's fine. Um, there'll be people who like the character of Lytton. They might buy it. But there'll be people who don't care about Lynn. They won't buy it. And I thought, well, how do we make this something that, that people will buy whether or not they like the comic? And I thought, the answer is that we'll have a, a, a DVD full of VAM value-added material with every issue. 
And it was a slightly potty but counterintuitive idea, which is based on on the premise that if it's five pounds for a comic and a DVD, although it will disappoint me in my heart, I'm also quite happy to have that fiver off you and for you to throw the comic away and just watch the VAM DVD. I'm kind of all right with that. It would disappoint me, and I hope that wouldn't happen, but I can imagine that happening. So if someone says, I really want to hear that case of Androzani commentary with Robert Glenister, then that's great. And that in itself is probably worth £5. But then when you add all the other stuff in there, so it's a comic, it's interviews, it's archive material, it's commentaries, and that's a, that's a kind of pattern that we'll be replicating for every issue. So every issue has a, a VAM disc. Kind of grew from there into a, let's do something different. Because nobody has, nobody has sat down and explained the rules of comic publishing to us, thank God. Um, <laughs> so we've completely ignored all that. A bit like we ignored everything with Walt Wolf and made it huge and, and had most ludicrous over-the-top free gifts with it, like records and you know board games and stuff. So we, we've, we've taken the same strange approach to this, which is, Let's just give you so much great stuff um, that even if you hate comics, you must buy it. One of the most interesting things that I thought that was part of the VAM was a commentary for a comic. I'd never, I'd never seen that before. I don't know whether that's something new that you guys have done or whether it's quite a regular thing on Kickstarter, but I found that absolutely fascinating. I think it is fairly new. Again, I remember discussing this with Pat Mills a few years ago, and I, and I, I bore Des Skin to tears with this saying, look, we must do a commentary on issue one Doctor Who Weekly. Yeah, right. You know, who will want to listen to that? And I think, well, I would. Yeah. And I, I'm also thinking it would be as simple as reading it, pulling out different frames. So it's the sort of thing that we did in some of the interviews in Warp Warp, like with Adrian Salmon and the Cybermen, or we did with Dave Gibbons on some of his stuff, where you just talk about the story and the individual panels. And then I thought it'd be as simple as just having a ding and then you turn the page to the next page. And then you, yeah. ding, you turn the page to the next page. So, no, no one's ever really done it. And I find it really strange. And um, I mean, I, lots of things don't make sense in the Doctor Who world. I mean, I always found it, to find it maddening when I go to other people's conventions. And we're talking about a visual medium. And no one had ever thought about putting together a clips package during an interview to illustrate things. And I'm thinking... God, you know, we're describing this as if it's, you know, as if it's a radio production. We have, we have stuff here we can talk about. So it's a little bit like that, and I think, and I think it just grew from there, and it, 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 it's got potential to become almost like a sort of video and audio fanzine, I guess. Yeah. And if that happens, I'll be happy. I mean, I found it fascinating. I, I read the comic and then I put the commentary in and I flipped through it again with Eric Saywood talking through, um, you know, the development of the story, the artwork and everything. It's such, it's such a, a neat little idea. Well, I hope we can continue with those because obviously COVID has made things a lot more difficult for us, but not impossible. Yeah. So we, we use a little TV studio in Liverpool called Video Odyssey, Foxwood TV. And so we're able to access good quality stuff for talking head but yeah doing commentaries in lockdown has not been without challenges but we've we, do you know it's amazing by using zoom you can actually you can actually do a really good competent commentary i mean the commentaries the gangsters commentary on the disc that was done via zoom the other commentaries that we've got in the can already for attack of the cybermen with eric and david banks and um Earthshock with Eric, David, and uh, Matthew Waterhouse, all done via Zoom, all been 
great quality. It's again, COVID has the circumstance has made us adapt, but it's made us creative with it. So, so long may it continue. I mean, disastrous as it is in many ways, um, I have to say, without COVID, we're probably not doing anything like this. Well, I mean, I guess it's a small blessing then from uh, what's been a very uh, difficult year. Um, so you've got lots of other projects coming up. Can you tell us a bit about them? Yeah, of course. Um, so the next step is is Omega. And and this is a strip which looks at... It, it, it isn't... Calling it Omega is a little bit of a misdirection. It really should be called Minios. So Minios is, is, um, is a sort of space grease for want of a better word, style word, world that was the premise of the 1978 Bob Baker, Dave Martin story, Underworld. And it's where the Time Lord non-intervention rule comes from because they heavily involved themselves in Minyos and then it led to the planet's destruction. So we thought, well, okay, that's interesting. They always refer to the Time Lords within it as the gods. So that that is fine. So we don't Mm -hmm. have to call anyone gods. But I thought, well, if anyone would know who Omega is, because Omega is basically the Time Lord Satan, it'll be it'll be the minions. So we put Omega together with this angry, decaying world and seen what's happened with it. And and the results have been been really good so far. We've um, we've got John Ridgway back on art, who was a, a legend in British comics, now eighty but going strong, um, working Excellent. in the traditional medium. So he's back working on on boards with with pen and pencils and inks a brilliant artist so we get three pages a week off john like clockwork tick, tick, tick. amazing so that's coming together really really well and the thing that i'm happy to give you as an exclusive is that we're also bringing back the backup strip amazing yeah so omega is having its own backup strip and so that's going to be six pages per issue of a brilliant little spin-off from nightmare of eden called Demons of Eden. That's got Martin Garrity on R, um, who again, oh God, such a thrill to be working with Martin. And it's a script by Ian Winston, who is one of the, um, another one of my Manchester theatre writers who I've worked with for some time. Virtually all my writers, apart from Eric, have been drawn from the Manchester theatre scene. And um, it, it's been good to see a freshness in approach from, from them. They're looking at it very differently. So Mark... Mark Griffiths, who's writing Omega, he's a, a very, very fine theatre writer in Manchester. We we took a play to Edinburgh last year. Ian is from a theatre background, and Sean Mason, who's doing Paradise Towers, is from a theatre background. So we're trying to do things new and different, but Omega is, I think, going to be very good, and Demons of Eden, which is, if I was basically summing it up, it is five of the most hideous people you can imagine. So, you know, think of Eric Trump, think of Nicki Minaj, think mm. of all these horrible privileged um, celebrities with big machine guns hunting the ultimate mandrel because they want they want that that superb mandrel hit, but of course it doesn't quite go to plan. So that's Demons of Eden. That will be kickstartering later this month. So we're just putting the finishing touches to that, and then we'll have the Kickstarter launch for Omega. Lots and lots of goodies lined well, up for that. You've already got my money. Um, I can't wait for that. Nightmare on Eden's actually one of my uh, favourite Doctor Who stories of all time. Wonderful. And, you know, it's perfect for comics because, I mean, I love Nightmare on Eden. I, I really do. And, but, it, but conceptually, it's so rich. Yeah. You know, the, the idea of these, you know, endangered creatures 
being the ultimate drug is, is, is horrible, but it, it, it's horribly believable. This is how, and, and that big money would pervert the best intentions in terms of conservation just to keep the flow of Raxoin going or Zip or whatever it was supposed to be. So we've taken those ideas and kind of kind of run with it. And Bob Baker has, has been absolutely lovely to work with on this. He's been very supportive. We get lovely notes off him on the scripts. And, and he's keen to see these ideas, to see people read them and see these ideas come to fruition. So that's that. And then that publishes in January, Kickstarter out. And then our final one is uh, Paradise Towers. So it's a sequel to Paradise Towers, set sort of 25 years or so after the one we see on TV. And the idea there is really, you know, what happens when the Doctor goes? What happens to the society that is left in his way? What are the good things that come out of that? What are the bad things that come out of that? What, are, what happens when things become subsumed in myth and legend and maybe the reality is a little bit different on the ground? And, you know, it's perfect for comics because we can show this wonderful, big, fantastic, strange world of Paradise Towers. We can revisit old favourites like Fire Escape and Bin Liner. But Amazing. Can, yeah, yeah, they're back. Um, they are a, um, they're a couple. Fantastic. Uh, and they live in the towers uh, and you know, the caretakers are still there, but they're old men. It's a different towers, but it's the same towers. And... Stephen Wyatt, again, has been lovely to work with, so supportive. Um, I met Stephen to pitch it to him in the, um, in the BFI last December, and he just, he just howled laughing. <laughs> he said, why on earth would you want to do that? And I said, <laughs> I said because the, the ideas are brilliant, Stephen. And then he agreed, and he said, yeah. He said there were elements of how that was realised that were disappointing. But he liked the ideas. Um, comics gives us that medium where we can we can almost deliver the Paradise Towers that was in his head in 1987. I'm a big fan of Paradise Towers. I know you said you were before. It is it is something that it certainly in terms of production it kind of I, I wouldn't say it lets it down because it's an enjoyable story, but it's very much. I would say it's heightened reality. It's a bit kids' tea time TV, which there's nothing wrong with. But that you kind of feel that the script, they were going for something slightly grittier. There's tonal elements there, that's right. I think if you were doing that now, you would basically be filming that in an empty tower block. Um, it would look a lot more like Dread did in the 2012 film. It would look a lot more like Peach Trees, I think, with a slightly um, stranger. You know, it'd be a bit, it would be like a colourful Peach Tree. I think, and but the ideas, the ideas are absolutely sound in that, and it, and you know, and it, it, it's Andrew saying this is what I want it to be. It's Andrew sending all of his writers copies of Halo Jones and saying this is where I want to be tonally. And I've always thought of Paradise Towers as basically Halo Jones on a BBC budget. Yeah, I guess I guess that's correct. Yeah, and and but the ideas are great, and um, Stephen really really lovely to work with. So. That's coming out, I think we've got that penciled in for April. You see, a lot of the reasons that our publications date shift, and this again comes back to our learning curve and us not always knowing what we're doing, <laughs> is that Diamond um, are the big distributor of comics. So if you're into the comic shops, they order through Diamond. Diamond's leading to um, publication is about five months. Wow. So you've got, yeah, so you've got to have covers and all sorts of stuff ready by then so to get april i think we've got to have everything ready by early early january which is doable 
but we do have a lot to do. But the scripts are well underway. What we're doing in Paradise Towers, which is also different, is we'll be launching fairly soon um, a, a shout out for a new artist. Oh, so wow. we want to give someone a break. We want to give someone who's who's got talent and a hunger and a desire to work in professional comics, and we're going to give them that that four issue mini series and say let's let's do it, let's work. That's a fantastic opportunity for somebody. I hope so. I really hope so. I mean, I've had a lot of people coming through wanting to write, and and actually in a strange way, I've kept the writers fairly tighter to people that I know, mostly because because I can't take open submissions. I mean, I have had some incredible submissions and sort of strange and wonderful and exciting but they're all for things that i can't get or haven't got you know so you know if you want to see the adventures of a, a crew of auton plumbers um, <laughs> it's a wonderful idea but i can't get the rights to the autons so there's there's nothing i can do with that idea so i would rather i have to do the hard miles of getting the rights and then have a think about what I think would work within the, those rights, discuss that with the rights holders, then find a writer that I think has got the, the chops to do that justice, then come up with the synopsis, then come up with the script, then get the rights holders on board with, yes, we are happy with this, and then continue. Now, with an artist, I think there's room to be freer and easier there and actually give people a chance. So that will be, uh, that's something that we'll be getting out this month. Because I'd like to make a decision on the Paradise Towers artist in November so we can actually start work and then get a Kickstarter out in... Well, we'd have to have everything ready for Diamond by January and then get a Kickstarter out in January, February. So, yeah, it never sleeps. And there will be a backup strip for Paradise Towers as well yet. I'm not quite sure which one it will be, but we've got some interesting ideas swirling around. Something from that Cartmel era I, is all I will say. Great, great. Well, as my uh, era of Doctor Who, I'll definitely look forward to that. And I can't wait to see all, how all these projects evolve and uh, what else you end up with in the pipeline, too. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I live in, a, I, I live in a, a state of being continually uh, pleasantly surprised by things. Um, but, we, you know, so far, so good, I would say. Great. Well, thanks so much for coming to talk to me today. If people want to find you on the internet, where can they find you? So cutawaycomics.co.uk is our homepage and our um, web shop. Uh, but we usually put stuff out first on, on Twitter. We're, we're pleasingly analog like that. So, so if you follow Cutaway Universe, we do have Cutaway Comics, but we lost the password, so we can't get back <laughs> into that. So if you see Cutaway Comics, that is us, but nothing new is happening on it. Um, so it's at Cutaway Universe, and then you will you will get all of the goodies. Excellent. Well, yeah, thank you very much for taking time out to talk to us. Uh, oh. This has been a special episode of Doctor Who Too Hot for TV.